Forefront, what is the most important test you've ever taken in your life? How many of you know that life just seems like a series of tests? Like you get to first grade and all of a sudden you start having pop quizzes for vocab, right? You remember that? It's like your hair on the back of your neck stands up. You're like, oh, I didn't study, right? It's like, this is first grade. But still, it was intense. And I feel like the older you get, the more you start seeing midterms and, and finals. But it doesn't seem like it stops there, does it? It seems like you get into life and there's just test after test after test. And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what industry you're into. Some of you, it, it could have been in college. It could have been master's degree. For some of you guys, you guys are taking certifications every year, continuing education every year. It's like the test just won't stop. But think back of all the tests you've taken. What is the most important test you've ever passed? See, see for me, that's an easy one. It was my driver's license test. Anybody else here, it was your driver's license test, 16 years old. Most of you like to walk, but a few of you guys, you guys <laughs> like to drive. For me, and this was back in the day, we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have YouTube. To get freedom in life, it meant to get the keys to your car so you could go see your buddies, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. And so for me, I could not wait to turn 16 to get my driver's license. In. But things were a little different back in 1997. See, in 1997, you didn't need 50 hours behind the wheel with a parent or somebody of age like you need now. In 1997, you just needed 30 minutes with your grandma in the church parking lot in a 1994 Ford Escort wagon stick shift. <laughs> and after about 30 minutes, grandma, if you're watching, I'm sure you remember this, grandma said, let's go on the highway. Let's get on the highway. I think you're ready. And so me and my grandma cruising down I-70, and I'm listening to Notorious B.I.G. about as loud as you can, and my grandma's just hanging out in the seat. I have the coolest grandma ever, <laughs> by the way. So yeah, you know, a couple, a couple uh, dry, you know, tours like that, and I was ready to go take my license. And so the day I turned 16, I go downtown Columbia, Missouri, get in line, I'm ready to go, but I... My, uh, there was something going on with my car at the time, and so I ended up taking my stepmom's 1989 Ford Ranger. Now, this was a truck I had never driven, but I'm going to drive it for my driver's test. How many of you know that's a good idea, right? <laughs> never driven it, but I do know that if the mirrors don't work, it's okay, because there's a big glass window right behind my head. I can just look back, right? So I'm driving, I'm taking this test, and things are going pretty well until uh, I, I'm driving and, and she, you know, the, the instructor says, hey, go down one block and turn right. Well, as I go, I notice the light turns yellow and I do what every 16-year-old kid does. I gun it, just gunned it straight through the light. I'm pretty sure her book closed at that point. That was it. She at least let me try to parallel park and I did one of these numbers. She's sitting here next to me. I put my arm around her. You guys know this move? And then I look over my shoulder and parallel park. And she's like, uh, excuse me, sir, you should use your mirrors for that. I go, oh, there's mirrors? I <laughs> forgot there was mirrors. Needless to say, I didn't pass. I failed. And I was devastated because I don't think I had ever failed anything uh, before. But thankfully, the next week I got to retest. And so like, I was like 16 in four days and I got my license. And I've been terrorizing local police departments ever since. <laughs> but I got to retest, which was a really good thing. But I often in life, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like there's those moments in life where, yes, life feels like a test, but when we fail it, we don't get to retest. So I feel like, you know, yeah, it's, it's, we've got certifications at work, and we've got midterm exams, but we also have just the tests of life. 
And those tests of life are often, uh, maybe it's a health diagnosis that's pretty scary. Or maybe you have a relationship issue that just seems to be fracturing and moving further apart and just things aren't going well. Or maybe there's a situation at work and it's just going the wrong direction and you feel like there's this pressure to pass that test because if you don't, you might not get to take it again. This might be it. and Everything might change. But I wonder, those tests, tests like that, what, what if it's not really a test you can't make up? But what if it's a test that God is bringing into your life to test your faith? See, see, some of you might be in a situation right now where you might be in a season where there's a lot of uncertainty and you feel like you're in the middle of a test. I wonder, could that be that God is allowing that situation in your life to, to test you, to be a test of your faith? When I was in college, I became a really, I, I, pretty much I became a professional test crammer. Anybody else know what I mean? Really good at cramming, right? The night before, two nights before, pizza, Red Bull, and your textbook, right? That's all you needed, and, and you were going to cram it. And if you were like me, and you were really good at cramming for a test, you often did really good on the test. But here's the question. How much did you remember? You know, there's a, a study that was done recently, and it found that when you cram for tests, by the fifth day, you only retain 3 to 5% of what you learned. 3 to 5%. And that is why none of you remember anything from your street fighting mathematics class. You guys forgot everything because we just don't retain it. And so I wonder, though, isn't that how we approach the tests of life? Like you've got a test, something going on right now in your life, and, and you're trying to cram to pass the test. And so you do everything you can to get it right and to fix whatever that test is. And so maybe it's a relationship issue, and you're trying to be your, the best version of you to your spouse or to your kids or to your parents or whoever it might be, and you're trying to do as much as you can to get it right. Or maybe it's the problem at work, and all of a sudden you become the hardest worker in your office because you want to fix it. Or the doctor says, hey, you've got this issue, and if you don't change your eating habits or start taking this medication or start exercising, you're going to get fill in the blank. And all of a sudden, you're a gym rat. You eat nothing but chicken lettuce and seaweed smoothies, and you're trying to be as healthy as you can be. But what happens for most of us when we pass the test. We stop. We worked really hard to prove to our spouse that we were the right person and they accepted us and we, we smoothed over the problem but now all of a sudden we kind of fall back into our own habits. Or we actually got healthy enough where we didn't need to go on the, 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 the high blood pressure medicine and then as soon as the doc says you got a clean bill of health, what do we start doing? in and out burger every Tuesday night, right? I mean, you know, it might be biblical but we'll have to look into that one. What do we do? We, we, we cram for these tests. We work really hard to pass these tests. But then when the test is over, we fall back into our old tendencies. And what happens? We don't retain what we learned. But I wonder if the life tests that we experience, the things that we go through that I think that, that God allows in our lives, are they meant more? Are they meant for us to be more than just passing a test? Could it be that God actually wants us to take something away and to change the way we live are the tests that God allow in our life meant to do more than just get a pass or fail rating? I want you to notice what James, uh, Jesus' brother James has to say about tests. Look at James chapter 1. Notice, notice what the Bible says about tests. He says that we should count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. That means full, complete, lacking in nothing. James seems to say that the tests that God allows in our lives aren't just meant to give us a, a, a pass or fail. The tests that God allows in our lives are actually meant to grow us, produce endurance, steadfastness, and to, to shape us and our faith into becoming the people God created us to be. Now, now for honest, none of us like tests. I, I don't like tests. I'm sure you don't like tests either. But God doesn't allow these tests in our lives because to, to, he wants to, to, to put us down or he wants us to, to not enjoy life. Or God doesn't allow these tests in our lives because he wants to show us that who's the big boss. No, he allows these tests in your life because he wants to grow you, he wants to shape you, and he wants to mold you. And he wants to strengthen your faith so you can learn to trust him through all of the valleys and the peaks of life. So I think there's a reality that we see in the way that God made the world work, and it's this, that God is always more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. See, we don't like tests because they stretch us, they hurt, they sting, they're not fun. But see, God's not worried about our comfort as much as he is our character. I read an interesting article this week about diamonds. Now, how many of you would agree that You've always heard that diamonds are come from coal under pressure. Anybody ever heard that? Like two of you. Okay, so like me and those two. We used to, we, we believe that. <laughs> but all the rest of you guys knew this already. But I just found this out this week. Did you know that diamonds don't come from coal? Two of us are like, what? <laughs> I've thought that my whole life. I've got coal in my backyard. And I keep stepping on it, trying to create a diamond. Diamonds come from the mantle of the earth. And it takes a serious amount of pressure, which you guys knew, to create diamonds. 725,000 pounds per square inch of pressure and heat temperature of 2,000 to 2,200 degrees. And when that pressure and that heat comes together, it creates uh, the carbon atoms bond and create crystals. And then over time, magma, volcanic uh, explosions push these diamonds to the surface. And then now you go find them, they clean them up, and you put them on your wife's finger, and she thinks you're just great. So ladies, it doesn't come from coal. It comes from the mantle of the earth. See, we learned something today. But isn't it interesting that some of the most beautiful things that, that people wear to show off the, uh, the, the beauty of the gem comes from deep within. It's created by heat and it's created by pressure. And I think God does the same thing in our lives and he uses tests to do that. He uses heat and he uses pressure in our lives to shape us, mold us, form us into the, the people that he has called us to be. And it's because of that that God wants to grow and produce our character more than he wants to live into having us enjoy our comfort. And so how do we lean into this and look at the tests that God is giving us in our lives to grow us and shape our faith. Well, I think today as we get into Genesis chapter 22, we're going to see maybe the greatest story in, in the Bible, at least the greatest story in the Old Testament of how God tests Abraham to produce a diamond of faith. Where God tests Abraham to produce this strong, growing, molding faith. So if you have your Bibles, let's grab those. Open up to Genesis chapter 22. If you heard this last week, we were introduced to this new character named Abraham. And we, we've been moving our way through the book of Genesis. We're taking the next year to take this big snapshot of the greater story of how God starts in Genesis 1 and tells the same story all the way to Revelation 22. And we begin to, we begin to get introduced to these characters that are very important. And one of them is Abraham. 
See, Abraham was the man, Abraham and his wife Sarah, was the family that God decided, I'm going to use this family to bless the world. For the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see how God tells us the world was created. We see that sin enters the world and things just get off the rails. And God decides, I am going to pick one family, and it's through that family that I'm going to make a promise. And I'm going to bless that family, and that family is going to become a blessing to the world. And so God chooses a man named Abram. And God changes his name to Abraham. But here was the challenge with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids. And so God makes, makes this audacious promise that through your offspring, I'm going to bless the world. And Abraham's like, God, I'm like 75. My wife's 65. We're not really at the age to keep having kids. And we don't have any kids yet. And God says, trust me. And so last week we walked through this like valley and peak of Abraham not trusting God and then trusting God and not trusting God and then God would come and uh, affirm his promise again. And we see in Genesis chapter 21 that God delivers on his promise and that Isaac, the son of promise, the miracle child is born and Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90. And so there's no question that was a miracle. God delivered. And so it's on the backdrop of this that God has produced this beautiful blessing that God's going to use through the family of Abraham and Isaac and what would to be to come to bless the world that we get our account, our story, our narrative in Genesis chapter 22. It's on this backdrop that we see that God issues the strangest, oddest, most powerful test that we see in the Old Testament. And if we can learn to recognize it, understand it, wrap our minds around it, it can reveal some amazing truths to us and the test that we walk through too. So look with me, Genesis chapter 22. And uh, we'll kind of camp out in this, um, the first few verses here. Genesis chapter 22, notice what, uh, what God tells us. It says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay, so this is one of those really odd stories that if you've read it before, you've been in church before, maybe you've learned it in a Sunday school class or VBS or church camp, and you read this story and you think, what in the world is going on? Why would God ask Abraham to do that? God just blessed Abraham after 25 years of waiting with this son named Isaac, and now God's asking him to give him back? See, it doesn't make any sense. And this is one of those stories in the Bible that a lot of people will look at and they'll say, see, this is why you can't trust what the Bible says, because God would never do that. See, this is one of those stories that some people who are opponents of the Bible, who, who, who hate the Bible, say, see, your God is a moral monster. He would ask for a child's sacrifice. That's demonic. Or for some of us, this is one of those stories that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. So we just say, I'm just going to skip over it. I'm not going to really think much about it. It's weird. Yeah, I don't understand it, but I'm not really going to dive into it much. But I think when we do that, we do this service because every time the Bible slows down, the narrative, the story slows down for us. God has an important truth for us. And I want you to see, Genesis 22, God slows down as he teaches us what he's actually asking here about Abraham and about Isaac. And I want, you to notice, I want you to notice this. Before we get into this, I want you guys to see, God never planned for Isaac to lose his life. God is going to ask Abraham to take Isaac to this mountain and give him back. But God never planned for Isaac to die. God never planned for Isaac, for Abraham to actually go through with it. Rather, 
God wanted to test Abraham's faith to see if Abraham would trust that God would keep his promise. God wanted to know if Abraham's faith was pure because God had big plans for Abraham and he wanted to know that Abraham would listen even if it didn't make sense. God always had a plan to provide. And it's a reminder to us that God always has a plan for your life and for my life. And so here in Genesis 2, we're gonna see this play out for us. So look back, Genesis 22, verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Notice that language, your only son, Isaac. Didn't Abraham have another son named Ishmael? Hold on to that. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That's the first time in the Bible, by the way. We're 22 chapters into Genesis that we've seen the word love. We haven't seen the word love yet. This is the first time. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So a lot of scholars think when it says after these things, they're talking about after, uh, after Isaac was born, and there's some other things that happened in Genesis chapter 21. And scholars often think that Isaac is probably a teenager. Now, it's all over the map how old people think Isaac is, but I think there's a consensus that, that Isaac is probably a teenager here. Abraham's like 115. Abraham's like, Isaac's like 15, okay? So just to give you a little context, Isaac's not the, the picture of the two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old. I mean, he's, you know, probably close to being full-grown. And so after 25 years of waiting on this promise, God says to Abraham, take your son and go sacrifice him. And I'm thinking that from Abraham's perspective, he has to think from like a common sense standpoint and go, no way, why would I do that? I waited 25 years. From like a human affection standpoint for your son, he's thinking, no, why would I do that, God? And even from like a future human flourishing standpoint, I'm sure Abraham was thinking, God, you promised me this, but now you're asking me to give Isaac back? That makes no sense. And for, I don't know about you, but for a lot of us, I think we would have really kind of struggled with this idea. But I want you to see, Abraham goes. Why would Abraham go? Because I believe that over time, Abraham began to trust the character of God. See, what we can see here in, in this account here of Isaac and, and Abraham is that growing in our faith comes when we obey God, even when he, what, what he seemingly asks for costs a lot. He's waited 25 years for a son of promise, and now he's got him, and God's asking for him to give back. It makes no sense. That's, that's going to cost a lot. But yet, he trusts the character of God. Abraham began to understand who God was, and he, he realized that God wouldn't ask him to do something that God couldn't fix. You know, if, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, go back to chapters 12 and uh, 13, 15, 16, 17. Abraham continued to, to, to not trust God throughout his journey. And he continued to hedge God's promises and try to negotiate with God. But notice here, there's no negotiating with God. God's like, hey, Abraham, go. I'm going to take you to a place. And I want you to do this thing. And Abraham's like, okay. It took him 25 years to get to this point, but he's to the point where he's trusting God and he has a willingness to obey God even when it's costly. Now, now, I do want to point something out here. When, when you look at Scripture, we look open to pages of the Bible, there's two, types of, there's two types of Bible passages. There's descriptive, somebody say descriptive. And there's prescriptive, somebody say prescriptive. Okay, so a prescriptive verse is a verse that is prescribing something to us. These are things that we should do. Right, so a prescriptive verse would be like in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter one and two when God talks about rest. 
talks about work six days and take a day off and be rested. That's not a descriptive verse. It's not describing something that happened. It's a prescriptive verse. It's prescribing what needs to happen for you. So we talked about that, right? If you want your life to flourish and be good, then you're going to take a day off. You're going to rest, a day of rest. It's a prescriptive verse. There's a really strange story that you should not read with your kids in 2 Kings about um, Elijah, Elijah the, um, the, the prophet. And you see that there's these 42 boys that start making fun of Elijah for being bald. And then those 42 boys get a serious lesson taught to them. I think that's prescriptive. Don't make fun of bald guys. Right? I think God's just being very clear. Don't, don't make fun of bald guys. But there's also descriptive verses. Descriptive verses is describing something that's happened, but there's a truth for us in that verse. There's something true for us to take away, something for us to take home and put into our lives. And that's what we're going to see here in Genesis 22. Here's the good news. You are not Abraham. Praise God for that. You are not Abraham. God is never going to ask you to do what he asks Abraham to do. But God might bring a test in your life where he's going to do something where it's going to test you and it's going to cause you to trust him. And so I think as we lean into this, we can understand that God knows what's going on in our hearts and God will bring tests in our life to reveal what's going on in our hearts. And one of the realities that we're going to see here in Genesis 22 that is going to happen in every single one of our lives is that God knows when our loves get disordered. And so God's checking Abraham to make sure his loves haven't got out of order. I love this quote by Augustine. He talks about disordered loves. Notice what he says. He says that our problem isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things. It's that we often love the right things in the wrong order. Anybody been there? You love something good, but you put it first. It's not that we love the wrong things. It's love, we love the right things, but we just sometimes put them in the wrong order. See, one of the realities that each of us need to realize is that we were created to worship. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them to worship to walk with God, to have this, this relationship with God and to put God first. God was meant to be ultimate in their life. But then sin happened. The, the world broke. Adam and Eve sinned, and since then we've seen that this desire for worship in us gets turned to the wrong things. It's like what the reformer John Calvin said. Like, our hearts are idol-making factories. We begin to take things that are good things, but we make those things ultimate, and we make those things primary. And I think we all do it. We all do it in our life, and it looks different ways. I mean, for, for, for you, it might be a, a season of work, and you're just diving into your work. Your work is primary. Your work is ultimate. It's all you can think about. You, you get home from work, and you pull out your laptop, and you keep working. It's that primary thing in your life. See, for, for others, it, it could be a semester at school where you're just like, I just got to get to this semester, and this is what's most important to me. For, for some of us, and, and me included, it's football season, Right? I mean, the fall rolls around and it's time for fantasy football drafts and you're watching highlights on ESPN 24-7 and all of a sudden, I cannot start, stop texting my buddies about a fantasy trade or about, can you believe that this happened? It's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing, but I've made it ultimate. I've made it primary in my life. And what happens is I put something else above the place that God is supposed to be. So... I want you to ask yourself, how, how do you know what's ultimate in your life? How do you know what's primary in your life? What would be the one thing that you could lose and it would shake your world? Like, seriously, ask yourself that question. If I lost this thing, it would ruin my world. And see, for a lot of us, I think we could answer that simply, right? Family, kids, spouse, work, career, comfort, bank account, 401k, whatever it is. Those are things that we so easily make ultimate and primary in our lives. 
and they can be really good things, but we've turned them into an idol. See, Tim Keller says that an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. So I think there's a reality that God is trying to teach us here in Genesis 22. It's this, that the moment you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing, you're putting weight on something that can't carry the burden. Only God can be the ultimate thing in our life. And so when God tests us, God isn't destroying the things that we love. God is just wanting to ask, are we putting things in the right order? Are we putting things in the right order? Abraham may have been putting Isaac first because Isaac was the son he waited on, but it was Abraham putting Isaac before God. God wants Abraham to see that God needs to be first. And so I think one of the questions God asks us, and I want you to ask, is are you making the dream that God has given you or, or, or the promise God has given you the ultimate thing? Or is the ultimate thing the dream giver? I think God wants us to challenge us. What order are our loves in? So God calls Abraham, says, go on this crazy test, and I want you to, to trust me. And God is telling us that we grow through the testing in our lives, that, that our faith grows when we obey God, even when the cost is high. That our faith grows when we obey God, even when the cost is high. So a question for you is, if you find yourself in a place right now where you're not, being, you're not really paying a cost to follow God, to make God first in your life, the question is, have you, are you really following a God that you've kind of made up in your own image rather than the one that made you in his image? Is God calling you to follow even when the cost is high? Notice this is what he says to Abraham. And Abraham in verse 22, verse 3 follows. Notice this. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had shown them. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I want you to notice that. He said, what day was that? Three days journey. Anytime the Bible says something about three, about the third day, pay attention. Because God does big things on the third day. So notice, this is the third day of his journey where God's going to move. Notice that. So it's on the third day. Then Abraham says this. Notice verse 5. Abraham says to his young man on his journey, stay here at the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Do you see that? Do you notice what he says? He says, me and Isaac, we're going to go over there and worship. And then we're both coming back. But didn't God just tell Abraham that he wanted to take Isaac and give him back? But yet Abraham says, guys, just wait. We're both coming back? See, notice here. Abraham tells the men traveling with him, we're coming back because Abraham didn't think Isaac would die. Abraham didn't think he was going to lose Isaac. Abraham knew God's character. And Abraham said, for 25 years, I've been following you, God, and you've delivered on your promises every single time. And because of that, I know you're not going to promise something and not keep your word because you've kept it every time before. See, how many times in life do you and I shy away from maybe something that God is asking us to? Because even though we say we might believe and we might trust, we really doubt God's going to come through. Like, Like, how many times in your life has God seemingly led you to do something? And maybe that thing for you is he's telling you to make a career move, but you wonder, God, but I don't know for sure if it's going to be able to take care of my family. 
Or God seems to be leading you to go speak to your neighbor, to share your faith, to, to step out and, and do something. And you're like, God, I, I feel like you're telling me to do this, but I'm just not sure that I can do it. And what happens is we end up not doing anything and we fail the test. But, but it wasn't because God wouldn't come through. It's because we didn't have the faith that God would come through. That even though we said we did, we gave God the lip service, we still had doubt in our hearts that led us not to step out in faith and to trust him. I don't know about you guys, but I've had that happen to me so many times. Abraham learned through those experiences over 25 years, and he got to the point where he trusted God. God, you say this, I believe you're going to come through and you're going to deliver. And so Abraham followed. And I think God uses this situation to show us that we can stop letting doubt stop us in our tracks. That we can see what God has done in the past and trust what he's going to do in the future. It's like that old adage Past performance is an indicator of future behavior. And God has, has delivered over and over again for Abraham, and Abraham knows, God, you're going to deliver again for me. So Abraham followed because he believed that God would provide a miracle. Notice what, what happens. Isaac asks a question to Abraham, and, and notice what he says. Look at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on his son. So he takes the wood that Isaac's going to lay on and gives it to Isaac. He says, Isaac, I need you to carry it up the mountain. And so Isaac's got the wood. And he took his, his, in his hand fire and, and the knife, and they went together. And Isaac, verse 7, said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He says, Behold the, the fire, right? I see the little Duraflame log. I'm sure he had Duraflame log on those little clicker lighters. You know, he was good to go. So he said, I see the Duraflame log. I see, I see the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? See, Isaac's 15, right? He's not, he's not a dummy. He's like, Dad, I, I see the wood, I see the fire, I don't see the lamb. Where are we going to do this offering thing to go worship God? And notice what Abraham says. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It wasn't like God might, God may, I hope God does. God what? Will. Notice that faith. There, there's a faith here. God will provide. The author of Hebrews writes later on in chapter 11 of Hebrews about this hall of faith. And he talks about people like Noah, people like Abraham. I want you to notice what he says about this verse. Look what he says in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the fact, act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham just thought, I'm going to take Isaac up there, and if Isaac does die, God's going to raise him from the dead. Because resurrection is more in line with God's character than this. Look at that faith. That is the faith that God wants us to have. That God, you're calling me to do something. I don't understand it quite yet, but I understand that you're going to deliver. And if you have to be, you're going to work out a miracle in this situation. See, all of us, you and me, all of us, we hit seasons of life where words unclear. Things are uncertain of what the future is going to be. And the question is, are we going to learn to trust that God is going to keep his promises? I was talking to a friend yesterday, and her mom's in the hospital. She has cancer, and, and she has a newborn at home. And she feels like God is stirring her up to, to, to quit her job and to stay home. But they just bought a new house. And they have all these things in, in, in motion right now. And they're just wondering, are we going to be okay if we do this? But God, I feel like you're calling me to do this. That is uncertainty at its, at its maximum. But God calls us, if he's leading us somewhere, to trust him. To trust that he's going to work it all out in the end. 
We might not see it until God's timing comes through, but God always keeps his word and God will always take care of us. And it's just those moments that we can live in tension of courageous hope. So I think what God shows us through Genesis chapter 22 is that our faith grows through testing. When we live in the tension of courageous hope. Like, what does it look like for you to live in courageous hope? Where's a test right now in your life, right now, where God's calling you to do something or to follow or to trust him? And he's telling you to step out in courageous hope. Notice what, what he does. So now they're on top of the mountain. They've gone up to the top to the point God has called them. Verse nine, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. Now remember, Isaac's 15. Abraham's 115. He's not overpowering Isaac. Right? Isaac could have fought back, but he doesn't. Why? Because Isaac trusts God too. Because all of the promises God has kept to his father. Isaac lets Abraham bind him and put him on the wood. Isaac goes along with this because he firmly believes too that God is going to provide, that God's going to provide a miracle. So notice, Isaac is bound, he's on the altar, on top of the wood. Then verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife, but the angel of the Lord, many scholars think this is Jesus, the Christophany, this is Jesus. The angel of the Lord, verse 11, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, fear, love, honor, respect. I know that you now love God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And notice this, verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard like a deer or elk or anything stuck in, in branches. They make a lot of noise, right? This was like the quietest ram of all time, just right behind them in the thicket. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. That's, that's that in Hebrew, the Lord will provide. And it's to this day on the mount that the Lord shall be provided. Notice here, God trusted, Abraham trusted God, followed through, but right in the right moment, God says, Abraham, stop. Look behind you. There's the sacrifice. It was here the entire time. There's a truth here that God always has the right answers in front of us, but sometimes we don't see them until God directs our attention. Whatever test you're walking through right now, the answer might be right in front of you already, but God just has not shown you yet. God just hasn't revealed it to you yet. But here's a beautiful truth and reality here. For a thousand years, we think this happened around 2000 BC. For a thousand years before this, Dating back to the beginning of time, God knew he was going to provide that ram. For a thousand years, God knew he was going to ask Abraham to do this, and he knew that Isaac would not lose his life. But Abraham didn't know that. And he wanted to lead Abraham to a face where he experienced God's provision. And just imagine this. While Abraham's walking up the mountain with his son Isaac, on the other side is walking up a ram to be there right at the same place at the perfect time. God is always on time. God always provides. And so God wanted Abraham to learn that through the tests, our faith grows as we experience God's provision. You can hear it. You can hear other people talk about it. You can read about it, but you need to experience because it's when we experience God's provision that we begin to truly trust, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's uncertain, even when it seems unthinkable. 
God wants us to, to, to trust, but we have to learn how to do that. I was reading this week about ultramarathoners. Anybody here ever ran an ultramarathon? You guys are like, no, never. Me neither. I ran a 5K once, and I'll never do it again. But um, ultramarathoners, they run 50 to 100-mile races. And I was reading this week about this thing called the pain cave. Now, if any of you are runners, you guys have heard about the pain cave. You guys probably know about the pain cave. I was, I was reading this article, and this runner, she was talking about at about mile 30 of her 100-mile run, she entered what she called the pain cave. And the pain cave is this thing that as a runner you enter into where everything hurts. And all you can think about is how bad it hurts. And in that moment, you, you um, allow yourself to experience that pain, but it actually gives you strength to keep going. And in that moment of that race, while all they're thinking about is how much it hurts, they're realizing that they have the power and the strength to push through. And on the other side, they realize they were stronger for it. And then on the next race, they enter the pain cave and they realize that they have even a greater ability to go further. And race after race, they enter into this pain cave and they're able to get out of it. And they realize that they actually have the strength to complete these races. And it makes them stronger, it makes them better, it makes them more competitive. And I think, what an illustration for us. When we enter these difficult times in life where we are in a test and it hurts and our bodies are screaming, get out, run away, get out of here because it hurts. It's in those moments where God is saying to us, I'm with you. I'm walking right there with you. And I'm gonna give you the strength that you need to move through this. And I'm gonna be by your side every single second and every single step. And I think the more and the more we do this, forefront, we learn that we have the strength through Jesus to make it through whatever that situation is. And so the next test and the next trial and the next difficult situation, we know Jesus got us through that last one. He's going to get me through this one too. So I think God allows tests in our lives because he wants to shape us and he wants to mold us and he wants to strengthen us. What test are you in right now? What test has God allowed in your life right now that he's saying, trust me, like feel it. Know that I'm here. Know that I'll never leave you, that I'll never forsake you, that my promises are always true. And experience what it feels like to make it on the other side. Because the next time one comes, you'll know for certain that God is right there with you. What I love about Genesis 22 is that God shows us what testing is all about. And there's a lot for us to take away, but there's another element to this too that I, we can't miss. Is that when God sends us a test, not only is he shaping us and molding us, but he's also revealing something powerful for his purpose in our lives. I want you to notice something here. When we look back on this story in Genesis chapter 22, we see that, that God is gonna use this story, this situation to point us forward to something he's going to do one day that's gonna be, it's gonna blow us all away. It's gonna be amazing. Did you know that archaeologists and, and scholars have done a lot of work to try to identify the location of Mount Moriah? And I've got a picture to show you. It's not a very good one to, to show you, but at the very top, you'll see an indicator for Mount Moriah. And you'll notice that it's right next to the, gold, the Golden Dome, which is a mosque in Jerusalem, which was built on where the old temple was. So this is where the original temple was, the temple that Solomon built that the Babylonians destroyed in 524 BC that was rebuilt and that Jesus came and, and, and taught at that was destroyed in 70 AD. Mount Moriah is on the same location as the temple. 
So 2,000 years before Jesus was ever born, God calls Abraham to take his only son and puts wood on his hands and on his shoulders and has him go up to the top of this mountain for a sacrifice that God provides the lamb for. And then 2,000 years later, there's another son, another beloved son that takes the wood in his shoulders and carries it up to the top of the mountain to a place called Golgotha, which is just 300 yards away from this. 2,000 years later, 300 yards where Jesus takes that wood, but instead of God providing a sacrifice, Jesus became the sacrifice for us instead. 4,000 years ago, God started something in motion to point us forward to what he would do in the life of Jesus. And Jesus willingly went up to that cross for us to give his life for us so we can experience the newness in life and have lives changed just like we saw these seven people today put their faith in Jesus and their lives are changed forever because of what God started 4,000 years ago right there on Mount Moriah. God wants us to realize that he is so far ahead of us and that he allows these things in our life to shape us and mold us so we learn to trust him with everything in our lives and it reminds us of what Paul wrote in Romans 8 that if God is for us, then who can be against us? For God, who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also give us all things? See, for whatever test you're going through, my friend, whatever difficult season you're walking through, God's got it there for a reason. He wants you to learn to trust him, to experience what it feels like to trust. And it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. It's going to be a struggle. But when we do, we will see that God comes through every single time. Let's pray together.